Welcome to this special BMJ podcast. Today we're celebrating a digital milestone in the history of the BMJ. In May 1995, the journal launched its website, which means the BMJ has now had an online presence for 20 years. We were a very early digital adopter, and we want to mark this important development by getting together the team who first got us online all those years ago. I'm joined by Richard Smith, who was editor of the BMJ at the time. Hello, Richard. Hello. And also in the studio, we have BMJ deputy editor, Tony Delamoth, who was the journal's first web editor. Hello, Tony. Hello, David. And later on in the programme, I'll be joined by some other people who played a key part in the history of the BMJ's online development. But first and foremost, Richard and Tony, I don't want to start a row early on in this podcast, but I'm really intrigued to know whose idea was it first to get the BMJ online? Uh, maybe I should start by, you know, in 1990, the BMJ was 150 years old and we had a special meeting in Leeds Castle, you know, the place with the moat around the outside, about the future of journals, and we published a book subsequently. If you read through that book, I don't think you'll see the word internet or the phrase World Wide Web anywhere, which seems to me extraordinary. It sort of shows how something can appear very quickly and transform things. So I think I became aware of the web. It did seem to me that it was going to have tremendous reach that it offered possibilities of reaching out to a kind of completely new audience. Um, Turning to Tony, you, uh, I believe, published an editorial probably shortly after that uh, Leeds Castle conference um, about the internet. And that was, I I believe, the thing that first got you um, thinking about the potential of the website for the journal. Yes, it was slightly more complicated than that. I was was liaising with an editorialist called Ronald Laporte about one topic and we published his editorial and then he sent another one in unsolicited and it was called the Global Public Health and Information Superhighway and I worked on it and asked him various questions and by the time it was published he said look I'm really grateful you published that editorial but it's also clear you understand nothing about this new world <laughs> and I'm organizing a study day in Washington and why don't you come over and hear about what's happening spend a day with people from NASA and WHO and the people making the website for the White House. It was great. And coming back on the plane from Washington, I sort of filled a a legal pad and all the wonderful things we could do, which would somehow leapfrog so many of the frustrations of working with paper. Mm. But it's, you know, it was the World Wide Web and the, the world was out there. It was a kind of a very peculiar, very primitive world. <laughs> you would get a floppy disk and you make the edit on the floppy disk, put it in the post, send it to, to the people who were running the server and then they'd put the floppy disk and make the change on. So every change took a week. <laughs> it was extraordinary. Tony Horrocks built and maintained the BMJ's first website from 1995 until 1997. Me, me and Tony met and yeah, he said, uh, let's let's start putting up bits of the BMJ. And in those days, it must have been Wednesday or Tuesday, we, me and Tony would meet and... Um, He'd say, right, we want the, you know, we want these articles up, and this, this, that, and the other. And I'd spend a, you know, a, a Wednesday evening, and maybe a, a bit longer than that, trying to get that onto the internet using the, the technologies that were available at the time. And, and that's what we did for for quite some time, actually. Right. And what what was the platform that we were using in those days? It was just pure HTML. Uh, uh, if your audience know what HTML is, it's just it's just the lingua franca of the internet. And and you have to kind of remember that. Back in the day, I mean, first of all, there weren't a lot of lot of people on the internet anyway. Secondly, there wasn't a lot of broad. There was no uh, broadband uh, or, or really connectivity. There were only one or two companies that you could actually even get an internet connection with. 
most monitors were 256 colour monitors. So it was like super basic stuff. So how did you get everything from the page online? You got a printed copy of the journal, which you had to scan uh, OCR, optical character, recognise it. In other words, turn the, the, the characters into electronic characters back again mm. and then spell check it then turn it into HTML and then stick it on the internet. So it was quite, you, you're kind of deconstructing something that had been constructed in print, uh, which was kind of a, a very strange way of doing it. So it was, uh, it, was, it was a long process and stuff. And, you know, of course, a lot of things could go wrong. Uh, I mean, because you only had a dial-up connection to actually send this stuff to a server, that kind of had to run overnight because even just sending images, I mean, it was... It was um, pretty primitive so you come up to the office the next morning of course the connection had broken halfway through the night and so you spend Saturday morning going into work trying to get this thing up and uh, it was it was uh, it was interesting times anyway yeah. yes yeah. you talked about things going wrong was there anything in the launch period that um that sort of t that hit you left field that delayed the launch perhaps or uh, no I mean there were a couple of I mean I mean you know, my daughter managed to delete the website once. That well, was, I've heard that about was brilliant. <laughs> I, I, don't, I I'd phone up Tony. Tony, I've deleted your website. <laughs> well, look, obviously, we had a backup, so it, it kind of wasn't that bad. But I, I do have to say, I have a cat, and my cat deleted a website just last week, so <laughs> it still happens. <laughs> um, I should mention at this stage that we're very lucky also to have with us John Sack, who's the founding director of Highwire Press. Um, and interestingly, the week that the BMJ launched online over there in Stanford, as Tony has just said, there was a you know this fledgling organisation set up, part of Stanford University, called Highwire, led by John Sack and the uh, the librarian there, Mike Keller. Um, so, so John, tell us well, when we were getting the BMJ online, tell us about Highwire and and what problem that was trying to solve for scholarly publishing. We were uh, set up really to provide a community uh, approach to the development of the technology uh, so that we would be uh, tightly linked with the, the people using it, the, the researchers, the clinicians, the, the editors. We, in addition to, to being a community, we also wanted to do online differently uh, than it was being done by the large publishers at the time. Um, they they were essentially putting the print online, almost with a, a a sense that you had to turn the pages to get from you know page ten to page twenty, uh, and we just took a completely different approach. Uh, at, at the time, uh, many publishers, uh, the large commercial publishers, were only doing hyperlinks within their own text. They were sort of building these walled gardens, afraid to let people link somewhere else. What you want to send traffic off my site? How insane! And and we just thought, well, no, that's part of being a community is that you have all these connections. Um, the BMJ uh, very quickly became uh, the leading edge uh, of Highwire, almost the radical fringe, uh, lunatic, <laughs> the fringe lunatic fringe. frings. Well, these uh, um, the the concept of collections that is organizing content by something other than date I, th I think somebody on your on your Sloan course at Stanford went back to work for the an American newspaper and he talked about news you could use and it was such that it wasn't like a paper journal when you sling something on a page and it as our previous editor said ends up wrapping up fish and chips the next day you could you could pull all the stuff on travel mm. together online mm. and have a travel thing so if you wrote about Miami last week people would still be wanting to access it this week next week and so so the idea of grouping stuff was that was that concept which came from this unnamed american newspaper i thought that's really 
kind of useful. The idea that you had to change from being a throwaway that you never saw to being an archive that you could then reconfigure in all sorts of different ways was really kind of, I thought, quite, quite a rich kind of idea. Which... Uh, but probably the, the most radical thing was this idea of, of uh, rapid responses, electronic letters to the editor. And this was years before Web 2.0. Uh, so, I mean, the BMJ was really far ahead, I think, uh, in, uh, in this rapid responses, and, and it was a huge success. Mm. Um, uh, I think in part because you had an active community of people who wanted to speak, uh, and by putting this capability online, you showed them that you wanted to listen. I mean, the immediacy was obviously very attractive because in those days, every mon- every morning, I'd be handed a group of yellow files. And one of those files would have all the letters we'd received in it. And I always looked at those with a lot of enthusiasm because the very fact you got a lot of letters about one thing indicated it had struck some kind of chord, whereas something else that you thought was really going to get people going evoked no response whatsoever. Uh, but we took ages to publish those letters. There were many of them we couldn't publish. And I always wanted to publish anything that was very critical. It seemed to me that's the nature of science and journals and arguments. Um, and so the Internet, I mean, this happened sometime afterwards. Once we'd moved to Hiawar, we were able to post these rapid responses every single day, including Saturdays and Sundays. We could post really everything we received that wasn't obscene or libelous or incomprehensible. So it meant that readers could you know, engage with the journal in a way that was much more real than engaging with it simply through paper. Yeah. just fed on itself a sort of a yeah. feedback loop. I think one of the great things about the whole high-wire community is that you shared things, didn't you? So yes. once we had rapid responses, you'd built it for the BMJ, then anybody else could use it. And similarly, mm-hmm. things that were developed for other journals. Collections I mean, and uh, yeah. uh, alerts was another thing. I think we started topical alerts with the BMJ. So if you registered that you were interested in malaria, you could get uh, every week. Uh, any, if something new had been published in that area, you'd, you'd know about it through email. But one of the things I do remember vividly, because everything's a little bit of a blur to me, I must confess, was the presentation that you and Mike Keller made to us when, you know, when we were having this beauty parade, as Tony calls it. <laughs> because it certainly felt to me as if Highwire was way ahead of anybody else. And, and I think the whole community angle to it was very, very attractive. We weren't going to be on our own. We were going to be with a gang of people and we could share uh, learning and ideas. And I mean, Tony went what, almost every six months or every yeah, year? Twice a year in the early days, yeah. yeah. And, and a few extra times as well. I mean, I think the collegiate basis, in a, well, in a, you were based in an academic institution that really helped amazingly. And I think some of those mornings in that hotel on the corner there, where there was only enough people to put around at one large table mm-hmm. with the sun dancing off the swimming pool. It was just like... <laughs> David Hockney. Picture, yeah, no, yeah. it wasn't David Hockney. It was like the Industrial Revolution. It was like being in at the beginning of something profound. Oh, the lunar men in yeah, Birmingham. Yeah, you could like kind them. of feel that something was happening and, you know, joy it was to be alive. I mean, it really... It was... It well, felt it was, you were in something groundbreaking and wonderful. Everything you did was something new. Yeah. Uh, it just almost by definition because you were you know so it was uh, like the wild west there was nothing planted there you came along and you put something down and it flourished daniel bahani joined the journal in 1998 initially to work with highwire in maintaining bmj.com but later as one of the bmj's main developers your role actually i would say daniel you you became a big advocate of open source platforms in the bmj could you tell us about that yes definitely i mean uh, i've been always uh 
big advocate of uh, open source uh, technologies. In fact, internet is based on open source kind of protocols. I don't know, I mean, uh, whether uh, you are accessing the internet from home, whether you are using a browser, everything is based on open source. A lot of people actually, they don't, they don't realize this, uh, but uh, everything these days is, uh, uh, I would say almost everything is based on open source. So, and uh, I think the reason why a lot of companies are becoming very successful is because they give you the software for free, but obviously you pay for the additional services. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and most of the technology stack we use on bmj.com is uh, open source. So, I mean, the Apache web server is open source, plus all the caching systems we use is open source, and the front-end system, uh, content management system we use is one of the leading uh, content management systems called Drupal. So, and uh, it has been uh, uh, a great tool actually to maintain the site for you guys in editorial without any assistance from us in technology. Right. Yeah. Uh, t- tell us about these sort of advantages of open source in terms of the collaboration. Yes, one of uh, the big things uh, maybe maybe coming uh, in the direction of uh, Drupal 8 is uh, semantic searching. So people actually searching for bmj.com content on Google will be able to find more kind of relevant content and they will be able, in fact, in advance to decide before clicking actually whether the content is uh, relevant to them or not, you know, because at the moment after 50% of the traffic comes from Google, but unfortunately most of it's a single click traffic. People come and see the page and they say, oh, this is not what I want and they leave actually. So, but semantic search will... uh, uh, hopefully resolve this. So basically, they will be able, in fact, to see in advance actually metadata elements like uh, uh, the collections and uh, additional metadata like authors. And all that information gives them an advanced uh, kind of uh, preview of what the content is going to be and uh, which means uh, we may be able to convert actually more uh, search engine uh, visitors into potential customers. Yeah. So you've talked about revolutions, you've talked about lunatic fringes and crazy things. Does anything stand out for you over the, those early years that you did that you um, took down quickly? Obviously, I wasn't here at the time. We take nothing down unless the judge tells us to. Yes, yes, which unfortunately they did with one thing, which I still <laughs> regret. Now, I actually, the funny thing is that when I think of the craziest thing I ever did at the BMJ, it wasn't ironically to do, I don't know whether this is relevant, but I was thinking about this the other day. We tried to produce a version of the journal that was 20 years ahead. I can't even remember quite when we did it. And we did it all on sort of strange recycled paper. And I remember (laughs) it caused an absolute nightmare for the poor printers. The whole factory was sort of filled up with kind of fluff. And I don't know, I mean, I I haven't seen one of those, those journals for years of you. Tony, I mean, do you remember it? I remember the experience of trying to put it online <laughs> yes, because our right. software was not 20 years ahead. <laughs> but the idea was that there would be a website behind it. I mean, this yes, was just yes, the jazz. So it, yes, yes, it, it was like Wired Magazine on steroids. Because, yeah. I mean, we, fairly early on, we got to the idea that once we had everything on the web, well, that's everything. I mean, all the rapid responses are there. They're not in the paper journal. So that the real BMJ was the electronic BMJ and the paper BMJ was a subset. Mm. And we came to that, in my memory, pretty early on. It was inevitability. And it's just, you know, once you identify what the inevitable destinations are going to be, you just work your way towards them. And you could have gone there with 
facing the other direction, sort of denying they were going to happen, which a lot of people did early on. But it was kind of pretty clear just to think these things through. I mean, I, think, yeah. I, wonder, I mean, I wonder if it was so clear at the time because, you know, people would say, well, where's the business model for this? You know, you, and especially you begin to spend quite a lot of money once we got mm-hmm. to Iowa, but no very obvious source of income. I mean, the, the source of income was still tied to the paper model. So you begin to think, well, we're spending all this money. You know, why are we doing this exactly? But to me, it was kind of obvious that to try and sit around and produce a business model would make no sense whatsoever. You, you kind of had to do it which in retrospect was right, I suppose it could have been different. There wasn't really any choice. But I always remember that marvellous thing about article in the FT and about sort of, I don't know, 1996 or something, saying by the end of the millennium, you know, 70% of organisations will have a website, but only 2% will know why. <laughs> you know, you just there was a feeling, you know, if you want to be modern, you kind of got to get it up there. But I think for journals, actually, it was clearer. I mean, if you were a big corporation, did you really need a website? Whereas, whereas if you're in the communication business, it was obvious to me you did. We did, of course, and we didn't, we're not free now. And whenever we survey our readers, they always say, if we can make one change, what will it be? And they also make it free. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on that now, Tony, with, in terms of business models and the fact that, you know, the website launched, as Richard said, to sort of reach people that were getting the print journal days and weeks later, but uh, mm. obviously the, the landscape's changed since then. Yeah, I, I sort of regret the, the introduction of access controls, and I think we could have, we could have held on longer. There's a great scene in the movie Social Network where um, Sean Parker, the guy behind Napster, is having a boozy lunch, I think, with Mark Zuckerberg, and, and the the guy who's trying to get his money back, one of the backers. And Sean Parker says to him, you don't even know what this thing is yet, how big it can get, how far it can go. This is no time to take your chips down. A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? A billion dollars. And Mark Zuckerberg heard the billion dollars and thought, right, we're not going to change tack. We'll just hang on in there. And um, Facebook's valuation today is $218 billion. So Sean Parker was out. And I think there was a moment at a sort of lunch where we just decided we would pull out, we would back down. And I think that was, I think we could have, we didn't really know what we had and we could have just hung on in there like Facebook doesn't charge and various other massive sites online don't charge and they get much more traffic. And I think we might have been able to think about a business model down the line if we're having, I mean, if you looked at the, the plots of the number of users coming to the site, by 2000 it was, you know, going up phenomenally and if we'd stuck with the free model who knows what we could have done I, uh, when i was coming here i was uh, pick, i picked up a copy of the evening standard which is the london newspaper and it's and it struck me how kind of thick it is and it went from being something you had to pay for to something that was free and it's way way better now that it's free i mean of course it's supported by advertising. It's more commercially successful. It's better. It's, it's yes. It I mean, it was very fortunate for me. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I left. I was, I, I, as I, I left just before access controls came in. And I was very pleased that it was possible to keep the research available to everybody because I think that, that, that's the bit that bothered me particularly because, you know, the value of research is in the research. It's not in the publication of it. And so to, for, you know, journals to expropriate that value seems kind of wicked to me. That's what I mean about publishing is theft. Um, So I think it's very good that the BMJ has been able to keep the research free 
And I don't know, but I suspect that that must be very attractive to people. So thanks for joining me here today. You'll find this podcast and some articles celebrating our 20-year anniversary online at bmj.co forward slash 20. See you in 20 years.